All right, so what we, where we left off last time was uh, the introduction and then Christ and how important it is to know Christ. So that the starting point for this whole in adult instruction class is the person and work of Christ, who he is. <clears throat> uh, the, the next lesson here is, uh, so, so let me back up. That should be our highest ambition. Our highest ambition in this life ought to be to know who Christ is, right? Remember, I, I left off last time saying that there's a claim on the table uh, that there is a man who claimed to be God, who died on the cross, uh, he, and, and his tomb is empty, and he offers salvation um, and eternal life to all who not work for it, but those who believe in him and call upon his name. And uh, the, the last thing I said was that I don't understand how someone could have that claim on the table and just not even look into it. Uh, I can understand saying it's ridiculous um, or, or, consider, or, or actually investigating it, but I don't understand the apathy of, eh, I'll, I'll get around to it, right? Um, that it, it, is, it is that big of a, a, a deal. <laughs> um, so that's what it means to know Christ. We talked about the, the text from Philippians 3.10 that Paul himself says, I've considered all things loss in order that, that I might know Christ. Um, now we're going to talk about the Bible. And that was a question that came up at the very tail end of the discussion last week. And the Bible is, uh, is, is the answer to how can we know Christ? So, how can you, so if, if we're talking about the importance of Christ, well, then how do we know him? Well, then you know him through the Bible and then what the Bible says about him. Uh, every, every religion has their sacred writings. So Muslims have the Quran. Um, Scientologists have Dianetics <laughs> and a bunch of other ones that you can buy. Uh, the Hindus have the Vedas and the Upanishads and so on and so forth. And all of the sacred writings can be summarized as books about the law. So when I say the law here, I'm, I'm saying um, what you do and don't do, uh, what you, the way you behave, things like that. Uh, they are rules or instruction manuals. And so what they do is they list rules and works that must be followed um, uh, in, in order to earn eternal life. So you have this. Okay, you have this. And all of these books teach one thing, and that is the law. Uh, they, they can be summarized that. They're just different ways and different methods on how to achieve that law and what to do about it. What laws you have to keep. There's just a difference, a variety of laws. Um, and that if you keep them and if you do those things, well, then you will in inherit eternal life. Uh, the Bible, on the other hand is in a category all by itself, uh, separate from, from every other religious book. And um, we have the Holy Scriptures. And when I say this, I mean both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and 
it is not simply a rule book. It is a story, the history, the historical account of our salvation, of how we are saved, of what God did for us. So this is then... The chief aim is the gospel. The chief aim of these books is to make you a better person. And the chief aim of this book is to show you Christ. That's the difference. And it's to show you the the perfect person uh, that is God himself who sacrifices himself for you, for your sake. Uh, And this is the difference between what you do and what uh, God does. The law then is summarized in this way, that it is what you do for your God. So it is your fasting, your uh, sacrifice, your weeping and mourning, your all of those sort of things. The gospel, on the other hand, is what God does for us, for poor, miserable sinners. And this is then the, the chief difference between what the Bible says, the whole point of it, and the... Um, uh, and, and every other uh, sacred text in the scriptures. Um, by the way, I want to show that to you. Look at John chapter 20. <clears throat> so John writes the purpose of this book. Uh, John 20 verse 30. It says, now Jesus did many, many other signs, that is miracles in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's beautiful. Uh, So it, it doesn't say, well, this was all done as an example to you. So that all these things were written for what? So that you would behave a certain way <laughs> or that you would accomplish something. So that the, the whole life of Christ is just one big example to you and you got to do what he did. And if you want to get what he gets, then you got to do what he does. Uh, rather, it says, no, these things are written that you may believe and that by believing you would have life in his name, eternal life. Um, so again, the... This is the whole point. Uh, every, so this is the main distinction between Christianity and every other religion. Every other sacred writing is about your sacrifice to God. The Bible is about God's sacrifice to you. That's the whole thing. Uh, that's the, the point of it. Um, yes, question? Uh, you're summarizing so well how Peeper says in his introduction that there's only two different kinds of religion in the world. Religion of the law or religion of the gospel. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Um, one of the texts coming up in the lectionary is the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I remember uh, years ago, I, I preached that. Um, you know, we, we oftentimes think, look, there's so many different religions. How do we know which is the right one? There are tons and tons, thousands of religions, thousands of beliefs and things. Well, yeah, you can categorize them into two. So you take all these different things. Well, what's the difference between uh, Scientology and... Uh, Islam. Well, they're both forms of uh, getting better, uh, of pleasing a god or, or something, or the Upanishads, right? They're forms of something you have to accomplish. It's just accomplishing a different thing. Uh, and there's a different way to do it. Again, what the scriptures say is what the Lord has done for us. That, that, 
that God himself would sacrifice, take on flesh and bleed out and die for poor, miserable sinners, people who, who don't deserve it. You will never find that in any other holy book or sacred text. It's, it's not there. The only one it's in is this one, is in the scriptures. So again, it's, it's not a proof that Christianity is true, but it is a proof that it is different from what the entire world has created. Uh, that the best that the world can come up with is just things that we ought to do better. Um, and the gospel is entirely contrary to our natural mind. Uh, it, it makes sense, right? That everything in this world is what we do. You, you get money, uh, sorry, you work, then you get money, and then you pay for something, and then you get something in return. There's always an exchange happening. Um, we don't see anything for free. And then here in the gospel, uh, this is unique in all of creation. Nothing in the world. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even dare to come up with something like this, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it too. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. You see that um, God is dying for villainous people, for vile and awful people, all of them. I mean, and we'll, we'll get more into that when we get to justification, which is the, the heart of it. But that's what's going to bring this up. But for the basic distinction now, just to know the difference between the law and the gospel. Now, what I'm not saying is that the, the Bible only contains the gospel, as if every single verse of the Bible is only and uniquely about what God does for us. There are things in there about what we ought to do. That's true. But uh, the point is, is that the scriptures never teach us to rely upon what we do for our salvation. Right? Does it, does it have commands? Yes, of course. Uh, does it tell us to rely upon those commands? No. Uh, and then we'll look at the text that uh, maybe seemingly say so. Okay, uh, so what is the Bible? Uh, like I said, the chief aim here is the gospel that you would know Christ. Uh, the Bible is made up of 66 books. It is a library before you. Um, we have the Old Testament, which has how many books? 39? Uh, 39, 66 to... <laughs> Uh, total, yes, 66. The Old Testament has 39 books. Uh, it's made up of uh, the prophets, things that are prophesied and completed. Uh, it's also written in Hebrew. Um, it spans from the year 1500 BC to about 450 BC. Uh, so again, it's going backwards. Uh, 450 is the most recent date. 1500 is going that way. Um, so that's the Old Testament. <clears throat> And then you have the New Testament, uh, which is made up of 27 books. Uh, chiefly, we have the evangelists and the apostles. Um, it's written in Greek. So the Old Testament, you'll find it in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. And when pastors go to the seminary, the, in fact, the f one of the first things they learn going to the seminary is Greek and Hebrew uh, so that they can read the scriptures in the original languages. Um, there are things written in Aramaic. It's not as widespread or popular, uh, but the majority of the texts are going to be in Hebrew and Greek. Um, so again, now it's remarkable to consider that these books were written 
uh, over the span um, uh, of uh, uh, several thousand years, several continents, uh, and, uh, sorry, several countries, and geographically very far apart from each other by different people, and yet there is an agreement in all of them. <laughs> And there's prophecies fulfilled in them. And a prophecy that's stated in one part that is fulfilled and we see it in another part. For example, one of the, uh, this is one of the most recent prophecies fulfilled. Uh, is that in the New Testament? Is Jesus himself saying that Jerusalem will turn to dust? That not one stone will be left on top of the other? And then he not only says that it's going to crumble. I mean, I... You could make that prediction and you'll be right at some point in time, right? You can say, well, the United States is going to go under. That's true. It's just a matter of time. When? Uh, or, I, I, I don't know, this, the, Rome is going to go away. Yeah, it's going to go away. It's just when. So Jesus not only predicts that, but he also predicts how it will go away. Uh, he even says, and the, the words that are so clear, he says, the day is coming when they will hem you in on every side. That, and if you look through history, that was a battle tactic that was not used, that was not popular, it was, it was not a thing. Uh, and this was, in fact, um, the, the emperor, uh, the soldier who pulled this off was commended for such an innovative way to kill these people. I mean, I, again, it's a very evil thing. But he came in and Jerusalem was very difficult to attack because it was high. And as the enemy, you're coming in. So what did he do? He went ahead and built walls around it and said, okay, well, you can't come out. And that means if you can't come out, then nothing's coming in. So we're going to, so yeah. Uh, and, and so I'm going to starve you guys out. And so I'm just going to wait here. And then eventually you guys are going to destroy yourselves. And that's how we're going to take care of Jerusalem. Really? Okay. So, um, yeah, so, so this, this tactic is done, and Jesus says that that day is coming, and he weeps over them. And then, uh, just a matter of 40 years later or so, it happens. And we know that Christians believe this, and he said this, because there were Christians who, when they saw the abomination of desolation taking place in Jerusalem, they fled, and they survived, because they remembered the words of Jesus. Again, this is just one example of... Here in the scriptures, we have a prophecy, and we don't see it fulfilled in the scriptures. In fact, we have secular historians attesting to the fact that this happened, and the scriptures uh, predicted it. Anyway, um, so then you have uh, the Old Testament, you have the New Testament, uh, full of prophecies, things that are predicted, things that are then accomplished. Um, the life of Jesus uh, is, um, spans from about uh, one B.C. to about 33 A.D. The New Testament uh, started to be written about 45 A.D. to about 95 A.D. Uh, the time between the resurrection of Christ and the very first text uh, confessing the historical eyewitness reports of the resurrection of Christ, what do you think that gap is? It's about 12 years, which Nowadays, we say, oh, 12 years. Oh, my goodness. That's too, that's so long. Back then, that is blazing speed. That is light speed. Um, 
that is a very, very short turnaround. If you look at many of these other texts that were in, they were written uh, centuries after. Uh, some of them were centuries after the events took place. Here, this is happening 12 years that the, the texts are already written. Paul is even talking about in uh, that text in 1 Corinthians um, where he, he talks about there are witnesses, the majority of whom are still alive. They've seen him. Again, so what's happening here with, with the scriptures, it's not that Jesus resurrects, there's silence for 12 years, and then finally they write it down. What's happening is that immediately he resurrects and everybody's talking about it. They're talking about it, talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. And then they're saying, hey, uh, Peter, James, John, um, Paul, all you guys, this is great what you guys are preaching, but what? You're, you're going to die. Yeah. One, like these guys are out to get you. One day you're going to die. And you got to put this down in writing. And so they put it down in writing. So again, it's not like these claims, there's this, this big gap and nobody's hearing anything. Nobody can go check out the tomb. Then all of a sudden there's this legend that, oh yeah, by the way, 12 years ago, Jesus rose. Nope, that stuff is being preached the, that very day. And it's being preached over and over and over. So the book of Acts is then recounting the history that's taking place immediately after the resurrection. Even though it's written at a later time, it's just historically recording uh, what, what happened previously. Again, when it comes to ancient text, this is uh, light speed for, for it to be done. Uh, because it costs a lot of money to write this stuff down. A lot of people aren't literate. A lot of, you need a scribe. You, need to get, you have to afford the, the papyrus, the scrolls. You've got to write this down. There's edits. You've got to whatever, all this sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> so the, the time between these things is, is about 12 years. Uh, the evangelists are made up of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, I'll, I'll just say this, uh, just if you want to take notes or listen to this later. Matthew and John are apostles, and they were eyewitnesses. So they saw everything. So when you read the account of Matthew, you're getting an eyewitness account. When you read the Gospel of John, which is the last Gospel to be written, uh, one of the latest ones, and this is probably John in his older age, he's writing this, um, but he writes this as an apostle, an eyewitness. He saw all the things that he's writing. Independently, we have Mark who writes, and Mark writes the Gospel, but he wrote it um, for Peter. Peter is... Well, you know Peter. Uh, Peter is an apostle. He's an eyewitness of all of the things in Jesus' life. And so he's there. Uh, he, so it's, it's amazing when you read the Gospel of Mark, you find embarrassing things about Peter that the other Gospels didn't say uh, because I think they're trying to protect Peter and they're trying to say, well, I don't want to throw him under the bus here, so I'll just say an apostle said this. And Mark says, well, there's Peter. <laughs> Why? Well, because Peter's the one saying it. And He's, he's not ashamed anymore. He says, yes, that was me. That's who I was, but it's not who I am anymore. So it, it's amazing to see kind of the, that those personalities come out even in the writings themselves. Uh, and then you have Luke. Uh, Luke was authorized by Paul. And so Paul is, so Luke was not an eyewitness uh, to the accounts. And I preached on this for Easter. Luke did research he went around and he talked to people. 
And that's how he wrote his gospel. So he went around and then he says, I'm going to communicate with you. So he actually talks to Mary. How, why is it that the Magnificat is only in Luke? Uh, well, he goes and talks to Mary. Well, Matthew didn't, wasn't there. He didn't know about the Magnificat. So he doesn't include it. Uh, Paul doesn't. So it's, it's not like the writers are omniscient, uh, but they are. We'll talk about this later, um, about the inerrancy and the inspiration of Holy Scripture. But uh, Matthew's not there when she says the Magnificat. So um, uh, Luke does research. He talks to Mary. This is why we find some really interesting things about the life of Jesus that aren't in the other Gospels because uh, Luke does the research. You know he talked to his mother. He know Luke is also the only account that uh, records uh, Jesus at the temple. Uh, the others didn't have that. They didn't know Jesus. He was 12 years old at the time. So Peter never met Jesus when he was 12. He met him later. So how does Luke get that story? Well, he did research. He just talked to them. And so he does this. So he went to the eyewitnesses. And then he concludes, when you look at the book of Acts, with many convincing, infallible proofs. He showed himself to be alive uh, to the disciples. Um, so again, so what you have in the, the four Gospels is a treasure. You have eyewitness accounts uh, from, from two of them, Matthew and John. You have Mark, who is authorized by Peter, another eyewitness. Luke, who is authorized by Paul, who just simply does research, talking to other eyewitnesses who aren't apostles. And you put them together, and they are in perfect harmony. <laughs> they all agree. Written at different times. Yeah. Sorry? That, Luke was not Jewish. Yeah, yeah. so um, that's another thing you find in Luke is he will also, um, kind of in the writing style, how detailed he talks about uh, some medical issues. Uh, he uses precise terminology that uh, some of the other gospel writers don't. Uh, he also will translate things. Uh, so he's, he's writing in Greek. He will... He will um, define things that the Greeks wouldn't have known, right? Or the Gentiles wouldn't have known. So, um, like Eli, Eli Sama, Lama Sabachthani, um, I, th I think Luke has a translation of that and says, well, this is what it means. Um, he will also translate other things like Ephetha, so the opening of the, um, of the man's ears, and then he translates that as well. So, again, he's writing to people who don't uh, quite know. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure that's Luke, so, but don't quote me on that. But, um, but anyway, but th this is the point, is you find all of these unique aspects in the Gospels. Now, they're not contradicting each other, even though they're highlighting different things. That's the point. Yeah? And I, and I love how Luke compiles things like a scholar, because he, he wasn't there personally, but his, per but his personal motivation appears to be for his dear friend, Theophilus, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So one of his friends, uh, Theophilus, is questioning, and Luke does the research, and he writes the book of uh, the, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts and records that whole history. So he's a historian just uh, doing these things. Um, 
uh, I want to point to something. John 14, 26. There's a question that oftentimes comes up that is, um, how could they remember so accurately what happened? And aren't there biases and um, different interpretations or versions of the story, things like this? Um, uh, so we have a promise from Christ himself in chapter 14, verse 26, where he says this. Um, well, f first of all, let me back up. We do have archaeological evidence. We have eyewitness reports and accounts and all these sort of things that bolster uh, the eyewitness uh, reports. We also have it on the basis of four witnesses and, and even more, so on and so forth. Um, and all of this could be seen kind of from a secular, from the outside point of view, objectively, that the scriptures are reliable. And I talked about the book, um, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Baucom, very dense book, and it talks about the reliability of that. Uh, very, very good book, kind of starting from the outside. But starting from the inside as a Christian, uh, we do have the promise from Christ. Chapter 14, verse 26, he tells his disciples, this is the, the, the night before he is... Um, betrayed the night of his betrayal he says but the helper the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that i have said to you so here in, in the very the very promise of christ to his own disciples again that promise is not generally for everybody it's not like well you'll just automatically walk into your confirmation class and the Holy Spirit will zap you with knowledge and you'll ace the test. Uh, you'll remember everything. No, you and I have to study. We got to do this stuff. But there's a special gift that the Lord gives to his disciples that he says on the day of his, his resurrection, the day of Pentecost, there's a day coming that the Holy Spirit will come to you and you will know all things. So all things that I've taught you and you'll remember them with, with extreme detail. So that John writes about the wedding at Cana and he says how many jars of water there are and how, how, much, how many gallons they hold and who was there and what it tasted like and all this sort of stuff. Oh, th there's a, a memory there. Right? I have a different... Yeah, I'll talk about it later. I'm going to get off track. Um, so the, the point is, is that uh, Paul... or Sorry, that uh, John remembers this. Jesus has promised this to all of his apostles. So it's not like they get out there and they don't they're still trying to piece together what Jesus said and wondering, I don't remember it that way, or I think he meant this by communion, or I think he meant that by baptism. No, they're actually all in agreement, all of them. They have a perfect knowledge of doctrine. This is, this is the promise here. And they have a perfect recollection of this. And that is faithfully then written down in the scriptures. So again, we have this, this testimony within the scriptures that verify themselves here. Uh, so what I want to say about this simply is that the Bible is not a, theo a theological book. It is a historical book. It's not a book of theology. It's a book of history. And there's a difference. <clears throat> I'm not saying, uh, let me define how I'm using theology. I'm not saying that this is just about spiritual things that 
are disconnected from reality that happen beyond the space-time continuum uh, in a galaxy far away. No. This is history. There, there are things that happened and they are written down. The wedding at Cana is a historical thing. It happened. And people remember it. Uh, the, the empty tomb is historical. So when you read the scriptures, they read as a book of history. They're talking about census, uh, the census. They're talking about times, who's ruling at the time, what, what uh, um, country and what nation is battling the other, which one is going to win, so on and so forth, all of the different territories, the names, the genealogies. That's historical stuff. The beginning of Matthew, this guy, he had a son, and that's his name. And then he had a son, and he had a son, and he had a son, all the way up until... Here, Joseph, um, and then he's married to Mary, and then they have a child, right? But it's not his son. <laughs> or the lineage of Mary, just is coming in, um, uh, in Luke, and so on and so forth. So again, you, you get this. This is historical stuff. Okay, uh, just to cover a few more things here. How was the canon formed? So right here, what I have in front of me is the Old and New Testament, 66 books, um, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. W why this? Remember that I said it was a library. Why did we settle on these books? And why isn't it bigger or smaller of a book? Um, <clears throat> this is what we call the canon. C-A-N-O-N. Uh, what, what is the canon of scripture? That is, why is... Uh, what's the criteria for getting a book in there? So there's a lot of discussion that could be had on this. I can simplify it in this way. There's three points. One is that we begin with Jesus. That if Jesus quoted or referenced a work or a book, we see that as his stamp of approval and Jesus quotes from the Old Testament all the time. So when he quotes from the, these things from the Old Testament, well, then we say that's his stamp of approval that's in. Okay? That's the first criteria is that the, the Lord himself spoke of it. Um, so Genesis is in because he references it multiple times. Uh, in the beginning, he created them male and female. Right? So on and so forth. Uh, the second thing is the apostles. Anything that the apostles quote or reference from the Old Testament is also seen as part of the canon that's included. So if the apostles then quote um, the Exodus, which they do, or the time in the wilderness, well then guess what book is going in? Exodus, right? Um, so also ri anything written by the apostles. So then we have these things in the New Testament. The third criteria is the early church. Um, it formed the official canon based on those previous two criteria. And I want to clarify something here. It was not voted upon. There is this uh, misconception. Not a, it's just a false teaching that's out in the world uh, that nobody really knows what books are included in the Bible or not. And uh, the early church was try, uh, persecuting people. And then they just kind of had this big meeting and they voted and then they created the Bible that we have, but it's not the real actual Bible that we have. So if you hold to this view, then you watched the Da Vinci Code and believed it. <laughs> uh, uh, that's basically what's going on there. Um, that is a, a very, it's a very Gnostic uh, idea. Again, I can't get into Gnosticism here. I did in the Colossians class, uh, 
it's not recorded, so that doesn't help anybody. But I, <laughs> but I did talk about it there. Um, th th there are a few references. If you want to know more about that, why uh, more in the canon and these sort of things, why we don't include the Gospel of Thomas or these other things, um, I, I can give you some more resources on that. Um, but the thing is, it's just, it's a slam dunk that what we have in the scriptures is the scriptures. Uh, the Apocrypha, those are, they're called deuterocanonical books. Uh, so second canon or another one, or um, apocryphal books. These are things in the Old and New Testament that are good, they're useful, but they're not inspired. So Maccabees, first, second, third, fourth Maccabees. Very good, but uh, it's not inspired. It's not the word of God. It's edifying and it's helpful, but again, it's not part of the canon. Um, we have uh, Bell and the Dragon. That's another one. Sorry? Historical yeah. context. Yeah. Yeah, so they'll, they'll provide context. And in fact, just so that you know, I'll just speak briefly on the canon or on, on the Apocrypha. The Lutheran Church has never taken the Apocrypha out of the Bible for theological reasons. So when Luther compiled the Bible and he translated it, what all of these apocryphal books, which the church had always said, well, these aren't inspired, they are apocryphal, and then here's the canon. What Luther did is organize it, and he wrote the, he translated the Old Testament, he translated the New Testament, and then he puts the apocryphal books right in the center, the intertestamental period, he puts it there. So you have Old Testament, Apocrypha, New Testament. That was the German Bible for forever. Uh, then we come to the States, and the Germans are trying to figure out what to do. Uh, we just moved to a new land. We were just persecuted. Let's put together a publishing house. We've got to get all this stuff. So the publishing house is new, and then they try to print the Bible, and what? It's too big. They don't have the capability to print the whole Bible with the Apocrypha. So they say something's got to go. So they took out the Apocrypha. So our, our American Lutheran Bibles don't have the Apocrypha, not because we said, let's take them out. It's just we couldn't fit it. <laughs> and then it stuck. And then now it turned into a thing of like, we don't read the Apocrypha. Okay, it's not true. Uh, by the way, CPH, the Concordia Publishing House, published a, um, a copy of the Apocrypha with footnotes, uh, kind of like the Lutheran Study Bible. It's really good. It's very helpful. I, would re I recommend reading it. Um, it's, it's, very, it's beneficial. These are ancient historical texts as well. Um, but it, the Apocrypha is not something we have to be afraid of. Uh, we just simply, it's, it's not like it has some demonic sort of teaching in it or secret thing. No, and that's kind of how it's viewed. It's just a historical book that is not part of the canon. That's all. Um, <clears throat> again, um, that's how the canon is formed. Jesus, the apostles, and then the early church confirming this, and they're closer to that time. Yes? Why does, if that happened, then why are most Protestant Bibles without it, and the Catholics the only ones with it? If with what? If, most, if that's the reason why, oh, it's just because there wasn't enough room, why are most Bibles you buy on the shelf mm -hmm. don't have the Apocrypha in it, but for, like, versus oh. Catholic Bibles all do? Yeah, uh, so the Lutherans removed it for practical reasons. The others removed it for theological reasons. So they said, um, I don't know, the Baptists at the time or something, they said, well, no, that's not part of the Bible. So they just tore it out. Uh, they had publishing houses that could do it, 
They just chose not to. So that was a theological thing. But yeah, so the, the only point I'm making is that Lutherans have never deliberately said, we want to create a Bible without the Apocrypha. It was just, we had no choice. That's all, that's all the point is. Um, a few things on the scriptures. What is the Bible chiefly about? Let's look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 39 says, <clears throat> you, Jesus, These are the words of Jesus. Uh, he's talking to the Pharisees. And, he, and, and he's talking to the Jews here. And he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So, um, do, do the scriptures contain eternal life? Yes. Uh, but then Jesus says, they bear witness about me. Um, the content, the very, the very object, the goal of the scriptures is Christ. Look at Luke twenty four twenty seven. Again, these are the words of Jesus himself. This is the text I quoted here today. Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. He's, this is after his resurrection. Uh, a couple of disciples think he's still dead. They are depressed and unbelieving. They're hanging their heads. Jesus starts talking to them. And then verse 27 says, and beginning, uh, let me back up, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. <laughs> so then uh, again, he's talking about the scriptures all the way back in Moses and the prophets. He's talking about what are they talking about? Christ and that he, he had to suffer and die. Um, the purpose of the Bible, I've already showed you that. John chapter 20, these things are written that you may believe and that by believing you would have life. Um, I, I want to talk about who wrote the Bible quickly. Second Peter 121. Second Peter one twenty one. The context here is Peter is recalling his seeing Christ transfigured before him. Uh, the, one of the most spectacular things he ever saw in his life, and then he says um, about it, "We have something more sure. More sure than what? More sure than what I saw with my eyes. I saw light coming out of Jesus' face, radiating like the sun. And I have something more sure than that." What is it? The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So he says there's something brighter than the transfiguration of Christ. What is it? It is the word that is shining here in the darkness of this world until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, here it is, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that the scriptures here in uh, 1 Peter, uh, 2 Peter one twenty one say that this is written by uh, the Holy Spirit. So uh, let me show you one more text. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. So Paul is exhorting Tem- Timothy, who is a pastor, and he talks about his... Um, mother and grandmother who raised him. He says, look how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred scriptures. So I don't know where his dad was, where Timothy's dad was, either he died or left him or something, but the mother and his, uh, 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 her mother are teaching the Bible to Timothy. This is beautiful. And they, they, so that every night for devotions or something, they taught him the sacred scriptures, um, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, and here's verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Okay, so here, Paul invents a word here. It's uh, theopneustos, which um, theo means God. Pneustos is... Yeah, like if you have uh, pneumonia, you spell it with a P, pneumonia, right? Uh, it's a, a disease of the lungs. So it is uh, breathed out by God. It's a new word he, he invents here. So he says that the very word, the, the scriptures themselves are breathed out by the Lord himself. So then we have this duality here with the scriptures that they are 100% human writings. And at the same time, they are 100% divine. They're written by the Holy Spirit himself. So that, they, so that you can have the personality of the writers. You can read Paul and say, this is really, really difficult Greek, and that's Paul writing. And then you have very, very simple Greek, and you're like, that's John writing. Oh, and this is medical Greek, that's Luke writing. And this is, so you can read this, and they have their personalities. They also have things that they uh, remember and certain things that they forget. Paul, Paul we, we kind of get this from Paul that he's a little disorganized. Um, and he doesn't, <laughs> he's kind of scatterbrained. Um, remember, he baptizes, he's like, yeah, I baptized a couple of people, I don't know who else, right? Uh, and it, that doesn't, he's not omniscient, but what he is writing is the word of God, right? But that doesn't mean he has omniscience, that he knows all things, but he is, uh, we can see personality traits of the writers in the text. And that, so it's fully human, fully um, it 100% human, and at the same time, the other characteristic is that it's fully 100% from God. So you have this, we can summarize it this way, that there are many writers of the Bible, but that there is one author of the Bible. So one, the one author is the Lord, and the many writers are, uh, are, are the apostles, are the prophets, um, the evangelists, so on and so forth. By the way, I, I want to show you something that... Um, yeah, this Theopneustos, right, this uh, breathed out by God, teaches us that the scripture, because God is infallible, inerrant, God can't deceive, God cannot lie, these sort of things. Uh, therefore, that is then transmitted to the scriptures. And the reason we, those attributes of the scriptures, we have them because 
of the one who wrote them. So it's, it's one thing if I write something, it's gonna, it might have errors. But if God writes it, well, then it won't have errors. Right? Simply because of who he is. So what this text in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 is saying is not that just the general ideas of the Bible are inspired by God, but that the very words themselves are inspired by God. This is the verbal inspiration of the scriptures is what it's teaching. Meaning, uh, this, is, this is why it is good for pastors to debate and discuss and pour themselves over words of the Bible, the grammar of the scriptures, because the Holy Spirit has caused those words to be written for our learning. If it was the basic idea, well then, what, what, what would be the point of reading the scriptures? Not the words, but the general idea. Well, I need to get behind the text. I need to see what the meaning is. And the words are just, who cares about them? No, the scriptures say that the very words are inspired by God. So then, therefore, it is worth our time to consider the prepositions in and through or for what the definition of certain words is, what baptism is, those sort of things. Those words mean things. And that's the, the view that we take to the scriptures. I want to show you one thing quickly. Um, some people may say, well, pastor, you pulled a really neat trick on us. Um, you tell us that the Bible is inspired and it's the word of God by using the Bible to say that it's inspired in the word of God, right? So that you say, uh, So you say, well, the Bible is inspired, infallible. It is God's word. Well, how do you know that? Well, because the Bible says it's infallible and inspired God's word. Okay. But do you, do you understand that there comes a point in all reasoning and argumentation where you cannot get past a certain point like this? This is, this is a fundamental thing. For example, I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, you talk to atheists. And they'll say, well, reason is the measure of all things. Reason, things have to be rational and make sense. There's science that reason has to do this. Okay, why? Why? Yeah, well, if you... Well, when you start to give me a reason as to why reason must be the measure of all things, well, then what have you done? You've done the same exact thing. You're appealing to reason to prove that reason should be reasonable. Do you see this? So, so you do, you're, you're going in the same circular point. Um, this, this is the case. For example, even empirical things. Well, um, how do you know that what you see is true? Because I see it. Well, how do you know you see it? Because I saw it, right? And, and then you're stuck. These things are then reduced down to, to these points where you can't get past them. They, they simply are, right? Uh, again, I'm, I'm not, um, uh, I'm simply saying that, uh, that it's, not in, it's not out of the question or completely invalid to then use the scriptures to authenticate the scriptures, right? Uh, what we can do also, though, we can bolster this by looking at the historical evidence for it. Uh, do, are these the very things that were written back then? Are they, is there a big discrepancy? Um, are they reliable? 
how many copies do we have? If there's one copy and just one loose leaf, you know, hanging out in the wilderness and we found it, I don't think that's the very reliable. Who wrote it? I don't know where it came from. Now, if there's thousands of copies, well, then that's a different story. If, if it's claiming historical things happened in a historical timeline and there's eyewitnesses to it and people can debunk it right then and there and it wasn't debunked, okay, now there's a lot more credibility. So this, this argument, although it still is a circular argument, just as this and empirical evidence, all these things, uh, the point is that this could be fortified. Um, this could be fortified again and again and again uh, to say that um, did, was the tomb empty? Well, yes, it was empty. And, and the scriptures aren't the only resource that's going to tell you that they were empty, that there's a big change that happens in these people's lives. Um, if, if you want to know more about the historical stuff, listen to the sermon I preached on Easter. To date, it is the longest sermon I've ever preached. 30 minutes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I looked down at my phone and I saw like 29 minutes and something seconds and I got scared. And then I was like, I don't care anymore. Okay, so, um, but that, that's, that's a sermon where I go into the details of, look, uh, the, the eyewitness accounts and how reliable this is and that uh, it's, it's foolish to simply just uh, dismiss this altogether, right? Um, okay, let me get to a few more points here. Um, okay. So, this is our view of the scriptures, that the scriptures are indeed the very word of God. Um, and that they are infallible, that they are always right. Not every Lutheran holds this view. Not everyone who bears the name Lutheran holds this view. Um, sadly, not everyone in the LCMS holds this view. Although it is the official teaching and um, confession of this church body, not everyone holds to it. Uh, and that's, that's wrong. Um, they are being deceptive. They are lying. Uh, they are uh, taking the name Lutheran and making it mean uh, whatever they want. I'm not going to tell you my own opinions here. I'm going to simply tell you what the scriptures say about themselves and what the historical position of our church is, which I truly uh, hold with all of my heart, with an intrepid heart. I believe this uh, privately and publicly. Is, this is my confession. They don't believe it, but they take an oath that they believe it. Yeah, that's... So, I mean, when they become a pastor, even unto death, they take this oath and then they turn around. I mean, how do they reconcile that? Yeah, uh, God, God will judge them. Um, yeah, even when you become a member of the church, you say, uh, one of the questions I ask is, do you accept or do, do you uh, acknowledge that the apostolic, the prophetic and apostolic word to be the inspired word of God, right? Inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. Uh, and every member of the church says yes. So if you don't hold this view that the scriptures aren't inspired or infallible and errant in this way, inspired by God himself, well, then you either took a false vow, you deceived us, or you were deceived and didn't know what you, you were saying. I would recommend that you re rectify that as quickly as possible to then learn what the scriptures teach or 
find a church body that believes what you believe. But don't hold on to the inconsistency. That's bad for your conscience to say, well, I'm part of a group of, I'm part of a church that, that teaches something different than I personally believe. That's not good for your soul to do. Um, but again, for that, uh, search the scriptures. So the, the position of mainline liberal denominations, for example, the United Methodist Church, the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Episcopalian and Anglican churches, the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, so on and so forth. Um, their practice is you will walk into these church services and what will you see? You're going to see them have a liturgy and a service and you're going to recognize some things. However, you're also going to see some other things if you walk into it, another one. And in some of them, you'll find women reading the lessons in church. Uh, some women distributing communion, some women preaching. Um, in some, you'll find them support abortion, uh, say that this is a woman's health care, this is a woman's right, uh, that's her choice. You'll also see some, this month specifically, have a rainbow flag outside, uh, maybe banners in the church or a transgender flag, lots of uh, political flags too. Uh, in some of them, you'll find animals in the church. You'll see things like pet blessings. You'll see, you'll see them allow kind of anyone uh, to the Lord's Supper and commune them, even people they've never met before. Uh, you'll also see them uh, be, uh, join in services with other religions and denominations. Um, with Muslims or Jews, they'll have a joint service, something. You'll see some of them approve of divorce or cohabitation or same-sex unions or whatever it is. You'll also see transgender pastors or homosexual pastors and things like this. Um, why are there differences? Why are there those differences between here, our church, or LCMS churches that confess this, uh, conservative uh, Lutheran churches, and then other churches like this. Why, why are there those differences? Yeah. It's a constant conflict between the will of man and the will of the Holy Spirit, truth. Thinking back to, again, Peter, you referenced him earlier, saying that true prophecy was never in the will of man. It was never man's ambition. Look what the prophets went through. Anytime they gave true prophecy, they were not rewarded for it in their time. They were persecuted for it. Stone, right. hardship. But when you look at Mary and how our Lord was conceived, the same parallel you see illustrated was not in the will of man that Jesus was conceived. Joseph was his adopted father, right? Right. And we, we are tempted as sinners to adopt the way of the world and reconcile that with the things of God that the Spirit is giving us. Yeah. So I see that in most of our fellow brothers and sisters, all yeah. different groups of Christendom. Right. I, I think that's that's a good an, that's the right answer. The Holy Spirit has great patience and groans that I don't have. <laughs> I don't know how he puts up with yeah. it. Um, it. Must be love or something, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I that that's the right answer. Um, I can simplify it even more. The reason there's a difference in these churches that you'll walk into one and they don't have these things and you'll walk into another and it has these things. The difference is 
their view of the Bible. That, that's all it is. It, it, it comes down to that. And the, the doctrine and the teaching, teaching, they have a very different view of the Bible the, uh, from the way the Bible views itself. They speak of the Bible differently than the way the Bible speaks of itself or the way that Jesus speaks of, of, of the scriptures or anything like this. The liberal denominations will say this. They can affirm this, that the Bible contains the word of God. You all are familiar with this, that you've heard this. The Bible contains the word of God. So, and they chose that word carefully, very, very carefully. It contains the word of God. This means that there are books, there are even pages and chapters and verses that contain the word of God. And that there are books and chapters and verses that don't contain the word of God. That's their view. Well, okay. So that's the first question. Which parts contain the word of God and which don't? And the second question is, who gets to decide which one contains it and which doesn't? It's the will and ambition of man. So <laughs> yeah. Right. Conflict with the spirit. So, yeah, so, so you have to say, well, wh- where is the word of God? Well, and you say, well, this contains the word of God. Okay, uh, how do you know which one it contains? Well, um, this verse, what part of this verse is true? What part of this verse is false? That you're going to have one verse and part of it is true, part of it is made up. That's, that's where it comes down to. Um, so then who decides that? Is it a pope? Is it the synod? Is it a committee? Who gets to t- decide that? Uh, right. right. Oh, that's precisely it. That, so, so that's the downfall. That's the weakest link in this whole thing. So you say, well, the Bible contains the word of God. Well, then what's your standard? Well, the standard changes. And so this is why 50 years ago, the ELCA wasn't pro-choice. 50 years later, they are. What changed? The culture. 50 years ago, they didn't have transgender pastors. Now they do. What changed? The culture. <laughs> right? I, I, you can just go on and on with this. That, that whatever the culture did, well, then that church is echoed. They're just 10 years behind, right? And, and they're, they're simply following the culture. Um, and, and the point is, each of you then gets to decide for himself what is and isn't the word of God. Well, then, <laughs> what sort of unity is there? I mean, one of you says Jesus was born of a virgin. One of you says he wasn't. One of you said the Lord created the world in six days, as scripture plainly says. And one of you says he didn't. Uh, One of you says he is truly present in the Lord's Supper. One of you says he isn't. Well, what's uniting us? I don't don't know. What what sort of fellowship do we have? Well, it just all crumbles. It starts to deteriorate. I mean, how profound of a difference can you have while still staying in unity what if i say there is no trinity I, just the other day ah oh, erica just left we were in sam's club <laughs> sorry i should stop okay we were in sam's club and uh some lady approached uh, uh our, our family talking about um god a mother that there's a mother god I mean, it's it's remarkable well then uh how do you how is that wrong is it wrong but what's the standard? How do we judge that is it, if it's wrong or not? So anyway, it, it turned out that um, it's like some guy on Sangang or something in South Korea is the second coming of Christ. 
No, no, it's it's even worse. Uh, if, believe it or not. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I. I was probably not as nice as I should have been. I was pretty, pretty upset, especially since, you know, my family's there to hear it. I don't want that filth to go into their ears. But, um, but yeah, no, I had to say like, look, I'm, I'm not interested. I'm already a Christian. Uh, the, the basic idea was that, um, okay, we're back. Um, so, <laughs> uh, the second thing, okay, so l- let me just uh, summarize this so far, they, they will say that the Bible contains the Word of God, and what they teach is this. Um, so, if somebody gets to decide, whoever it is, a pope, a committee, a council, who, what is the Word of God, well, then where are they standing? They're standing here, and then they cast some parts here and some parts there. No and yes. Right? I like this part, boom, the Word of God. I don't like this part, not the Word of God. Do you have a comment? Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, so they get to decide this. Um, <clears throat> this view is called higher criticism. Okay. So you are... Or the spirit of the age. <laughs> yeah, the, the zeitgeist. Uh, you, you are a higher critic because you are above the scriptures. You're higher than, than, than they are. And you are critiquing them. So then when the scriptures say something that confounds reason, well, then what? Who wins? reason right it doesn't make sense to me so therefore that can't be what it means if i find something in in nature or um science that conflicts with the scriptures well then who's what's got to go well obviously my observation what i'm seeing is more reliable than this book and what god himself said whoa okay uh well here's this scientific thing well that is i'm, I'm more certain of my eyes and what they see than what the word of God has plainly and clearly said. So again, what you're doing, you're scrutinizing history, uh, the, uh, claims of the scriptures, um, anything in the scriptures to reason. Luther has this great quote in um, uh, against the fanatics that these words, uh, this is my body still sent firm against the fanatics. Uh, wonderful work on the Lord's Supper. Uh, Zwingli was teaching that the Lord's Supper isn't the very body and blood of Christ because it's unreasonable. Um, And Luther then has this great line. He says, uh, not one article of faith would remain if we subjected the scriptures to the rancor of reason. (laughs) Meaning, if you go down this path, you're going to get rid of everything because it doesn't make sense. Yeah, so then you're going to go back to creation. You're going to go back. To, you're, you're, you're going to go down. The Trinity. Well, that doesn't make sense. Boom, boom, boom. You start peeling away, and then you, you're left with nothing. So if, if reason is going to be king, then just say so. And then just say, I believe in my reason above my senses, and, and, and my senses above the scriptures. Uh, so that's higher criticism. So as you read the Bible, you're above it. You critique it uh, with some... Uh, measure of reason, feelings, culture, tradition. I mean, even down to the point of saying, well, I don't believe this is true because I don't feel it. Well, what are you doing? You're being a higher critic at that point. When, when I say you're a sinner, and then you say, well, I don't feel like a sinner. Well, you're being a higher critic because you're taking your emotions and you're saying, well, my emotions are true and they are never deceptive. <laughs> they're, they're always reflective of reality. And if, if I feel good, 
then when the Bible says I'm a sinner, then that's not true. Well, you're a higher critic then. Uh, and if I, uh, because you say, well, I don't feel it. But what you've done is you've lorded your feelings above the word of God. Um, the other hand, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, the confessional Lutherans, those who hold to the plain words of Scripture, do not say that the Bible contains the Word of God, but that the Bible is the Word of God. With a certainty, um, with intrepid hearts, with concord, with conviction, we say this. Uh, and it's not just to please anyone or to hold to some stand. I don't know. I don't know how you could be a pastor and not believe this. I don't know what you're doing with your life. I, I, I seriously don't. Um, when I went to Cambridge, there were a bunch of people studying the scriptures and they, um, they studied the scriptures, but they don't believe a word of it. Like, you guys are wasting, wasting your, like, why? This is, I don't know what you're doing. And they knew Greek really well and Hebrew, but I, this is a waste of time. Anyway, this, the Lutheran position, and I'm, from here now, I'm going to, refer to that as as our position the lutheran position is that the bible is the word of god we chose this word carefully this means that every book page chapter and verse is the inspired infallible word of god it is the very word of god and you can be confident that this is from god which means that grammar matters the words matter the details of this matter and we our view is this we are beneath the scriptures we are lower critics um, that means we admit that um, this, we, we are lower beneath the scriptures because we have a high view of the scriptures. We put the word of God high above us as, as God's uh, ways are above our ways, his thoughts above our, our thoughts. As, uh, higher than the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways and thoughts above ours. So th that's where we place ourselves. I'm, I'm an ant. I'm a worm before the Almighty. So if he says something that confounds reason, well, I'm, I'm going to believe him. That's, that's the word. Uh, that I'm go going to go with what the scripture says, even if I cannot make sense out of it. I cannot make sense out of the Trinity. And yet I confess this because this is what the words plainly say. And so I'm stuck. So um, what am I going to believe? My 30-some-year-old brain and observations or a God who is eternal, who caused his word to be written, who overthrew death, who created the world out of, uh, out of nothing. Well, I'm going to go with God every, every single time. So that our view then is we are lower beneath the scriptures. We don't stand above it, but beneath it. We don't critique the Bible. We allow the Bible to then critique us. We don't correct the Bible. The Bible then corrects us. And so on and so forth. So that if we encounter something that is contrary to us in the scriptures, well, then we side with the scriptures. So that if the scriptures then say, you are a sinner, and I say, well, I don't feel like one. Uh, we say, well, the scriptures didn't say, I f feel like a sinner. They say, I am. Uh, therefore, I am, regardless of how I feel. And when the scriptures say that I'm forgiven, that the Lord loves me, even though I don't feel loved, I don't feel forgiven, well then, what, what's true? Not my feelings, the word of God. What he said then is true. And this goes with all things. Now, if, if there's something in science that confounds us or contradicts with, with the scriptures, um, okay, we wrestle with it. And we, we try and figure what's out what's going on. At the end of the day, who's going to win the argument? We're going to say God will. 
the scriptures will. And that means there must be something faulty in my observation, something faulty in my science, which changes every five minutes. We have the theory of relativity for approximately five minutes, and now we're judging everything in the scriptures according to that. I mean, so, again, we have to be, uh, we are, we are uh, students of the word. We're beneath them. Um, I want to show you, uh, we're, we're going to end here. But I have a couple of handouts quickly. And this didn't print out like I, I desired. But, um, oh no, maybe it did. Yeah, it did. Okay. I don't know how many copies I have here, but you could take two of them. Um, so two of these copies. One is this. It's called The Reliability of the New Testament. It's just reformatted. You, you can find it in a lot of places on the internet and a lot of good books, apologetics and things, uh, comparing the different copies. So you have the, the next best historically attested to text of, ancient, of the ancient world is Homer's Iliad. Right? Um, it was written in 800 BC. The earliest copy is 400 BC. There's a time gap of 400 years and we have 643 copies. That is the, the best historical, ancient historical document that we have on record. Sorry, the second best. Number one is the scriptures. You have the New Testament written from 50 AD to 100 AD. Um, fragments from as early as 114, uh, um, uh, from the year 200, 250, 325, complete New Testaments. Time gaps of 50 uh, years. Uh, guess how many copies we have? 5,366 copies. So, it, again, this is, so I put it in a graph so that you see. Here's the best, uh, second best, uh, well-attested to historical text in all of ancient history down here. And then here are the scriptures, just blowing them out of the water. I mean, the, the comparison, it, it, it's not there. Uh, so you're going to say, um, well, we don't really know what the Bible says. We do. We do. The question is now whether you believe it. But you do have reliability in the scriptures. Um, that you can be certain that what they were reading 2,000 years ago is what we have here in the Bible here today. There are small, small differences. Never anything that changes the meaning of the text. Phonetic differences. Uh, something like, I don't know, you can spell the word phone with a PH or an F. Okay, does that change the meaning of the word? No, it's, it's fun. So little minor things like that. Other things of saying Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. That's a difference, right? But does it change anything? No. 99.9, uh, Bruce Metzger did a study on this. 99.9% .9 of all of the variances in the text are of that nature, completely insignificant. That of punctuation, spelling, word order, but it doesn't change the meaning. It's not like one of them says, well, Jesus is not God, or that it's father or mother, uh, daughter, and I don't know, Holy Spirit or something. It, there's no variances like that of such a thing. So it's entirely, uh, it's entirely reliable. Um, so I'll pass this out. Yeah, so just take one copy of each and then uh, just pass it around and I'll, I'll leave them. Leave them out. Okay, um, let's end here.
Okay, we'll go ahead and end here. Um, are there any questions?